Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, here is the much-anticipated Devil Palooza podcast with N.T. Wright, Richard Beck, Greg Boyd, Tony Jones, Trip Fuller, and myself. And so let me tell you what's going to happen. For the first 20 minutes, Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity, another podcast, he and I just kind of talk because that's what you do when you have a bunch of brilliant people like N.T. Wright on the podcast. You make people wait for that. So if you jump all the way to the 21-minute mark, that's when the live recording of Devil Palooza starts. If you jump to 31.30, Richard Beck comes on the show. If you go all the way to 55.20, that's when N.T. Wright shows up. And if you go to 119, Greg Boyd joins the show. And if you want more of Luke and Trip, just wait to the one hour and 46 minute mark and there's more Luke and Trip. So without further ado, here is the Devil Palooza. Welcome, theology nerds. This is homebrewed Christian podcast throwdown Lectio cast. Man, your excitement's amazing, Luke, but uh, I'm excited because I'm just trying to get ready for some awesome, not just awesome, newsworthy awesome (laughs) with my best friend, Duke. Um, Luke, not Duke. Luke, my best friend, Luke. uh, Nope. Trip. Well, nope. Malibu was great, and we're going to talk to N.T. Wright and Greg Boyd and, and release, like, Richard Beck's book into the universe, so that's something. So you've got a million other podcasts, but none of them are able to have the Devil Palooza on them. That's only on the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. And the news, this is like a joint podcast where people can listen. It'd be great if each of us had, like, running commentary during the podcast, but people probably would get distracted by that, just like you're going to be distracted by this intro. But well, it's going to happen. Well, I, I think we should um, uh, we should have a follow up podcast. Like after it's out, we people yes. send in topics, and then we we answer questions about yes. whatever the hell they. Oh wait, this heaven, whatever the heaven they want, whatever in a place that may or may not be fictive, depending on which guest of this podcast you're asking. <laughs> Um, they send in. I love this idea. Send in. You can send your questions in. Uh, your your Twitter handle at Trip Fuller. Is that right? Oh yeah. Mine's at Luke Norsworthy. Email me, Luke at Luke Norsworthy. What's the email to send questions to you at? Trip at homebrewedchristianity.com. Trip at homebrewed. Or on the Facebooks. Facebooks, yes. Send us questions. Twitter, Facebook, email. Yeah, because. We'll do, that. do these wrap-up episodes. I actually have feelings about a number of your guests. I could share those. Oh, like, are you are you trying to take Stormin's spot as the? No, no, no. I want to do it with him. I want you to listen to me and him talk because <laughs> I feel like he he's like to the edge of just critiquing you, but because you're friends and and he's talking to you, he doesn't want to like cut the episode short. But then I can no. add cop it. And then he good cops and steps at one step back. It's still, it's it's you know, it's it's still a little more. Chicka, chicka, chicka. Then, a little more? Oh wow! This sounds. There's a lot of opportunities that are just bubbling up right here. This this intro is a wellspring of erudition and creativity. I had one idea for a podcast that would be fun for uh, that. I wanted to do a podcast that was all the people that have Christian podcasts that don't suck. And it's and it and it's once a month, um, uh-huh. but where you know it's literally whatever topics people send in, but uh-huh. where it's like this, but there are four people's heads on the screen, um, uh-huh. and 
and it's but it's live stream so it's more like a hangout while we talked about whatever people sent in and why i thought of it is because i swear there are like six publicists who mail us all the same books at the same time and i and i occasionally tell them like look i'm not interviewing this person after luke did it i'm like oprah and shit <laughs> and you are the Oprah. Um, I've been I've been called the Oprah of Churches of Christ. Yeah, you really are the Oprah of Christianity, uh, or at least I thought Oprah was. <laughs> no, see, I have a I don't know if you can see I have a stack of books that just like sit right there on my counter. Of they just come in the mail. I'm like I I can't yeah. can't do them all, dude. I have a I one time I saved them up for a year and. Well, I don't want to tell the story because then they might. You burnt them, didn't you? Like that story in the Book of Acts. Uh, excuse me, Acts is a book in the Bible. If you forgot. Oh, oh okay, yeah, the Bible. Um, the the uh, is your canon closed? I I just feel like I add stuff to it regularly. <laughs> no, one time. Uh, funk from the Jesus Seminar was like we nope. left a canon. I don't even know what the Jesus Seminar is because <laughs> sure. I know what the Gospels are. You're like the I'm... only colored beads I have are the ones that lead you down the Roman road at church camp. Mm-hmm. Is for the blood, color of the blood that flowed down. Yellow the is the Christian who's afraid to tell, afraid to tell. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But anyway, the idea was to uh, on the thing review all those books we got. That we've never read. So <laughs> it, it's reviewing books without reading it. And, and what we do is we look at the t- cover and the author and who endorsed it and yes. the titles and proceed to guess <laughs> what is in the book. They're never going to send us books again if they hear that, though. They're like, um, I feel like if someone did that for my book and it was funny, I would love it. One, share it, and then be like, that was awesome, and you should talk to me about the actual book. And um, it's also a way to tell if you like the author or not. If you asked to be interviewed after us who have not read your book and received the book for free and mm-hmm. <laughs> interpreted your book without reading it, then I feel like you're a high-quality podcast guest. That's 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 true. I think they would I would go for it. And that's speaking cool. of books, you've got a book, Liar well, Lunatic. Are awesome, yeah. Liar. I really appreciated that interview we did about it. <laughs> I remember those e- the email exchange, like it, it was so good, guys. Like, he at the end, he had basically, like, he's like, Look, I gotta become a liberal mainline Protestant trip, <laughs> and I was like, Don't publish this, it'll ruin your career. He's yeah, like, but, but you it's know, so awesome. Here I stand, I can do <laughs> no other. Um, and and I was like, No. No, no, like he's like, can I go with you? And I like Jesus and the demoniac see demons. I'm like, no, no, you got to go back to where you where you came from. You, That's I take yeah. Because what I did is I got that book and I nailed it to the door of my church and I said, this is what's happening. But then, like, I think the nail fell out of the door and then the custodian just I think threw it away. But, or they read the first page and <laughs> they're like, I, don't know, I can't. They're do like. Why? Obviously, Luke nailed this to the first page because the first page discusses Jesus having. Yeah, that's. And I was. I was nailing it shut. I was making sure no one would read it. <laughs> Do not, but see, see, I, yeah. I mean, it was a great interview. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. To be honest, it would be hard for me to pinpoint one thing as a highlight because the whole thing was a highlight, and probably that's why I didn't want to share it because. It would be really difficult for any guest to, to live up to that. And that's yeah. probably what happened. Well, 
I mean, I really love that um, that endorsement. It seemed real, genuine. It was authentic, straight from the heart. Um, you know what else is genuine? The love that people experience in this podcast. <laughs> they've now been waiting 15 minutes to hear. Are you serious? I don't know how long this has been going. Oh uh, well, um, you it's know been, what? It's okay. not like it's not a two-hour podcast episode already. So I, I usually would break it up into two, but I feel like we're just—I'm just, just going to roll with one long two-hour podcast. Yeah. So before we actually start, we should tell yeah. you a few things. <laughs> Let's do that because it's not just a podcast. There's also going to be a video that comes with it. discount. A di- is it thirty percent off? I don't. I don't remember. There's a some number that's a lot. Uh, and like it a includes mid- free shipping. I do remember that because I was like, you have to give them a discount that's cheaper than Amazon and include free shipping. And Fortress Press was like, we want people to read Richard Beck's book. And I agree. You agree? If you listen to the interview just a few days ago, you were already considering buying the book. You're like, this is good. This is this is going to turn the quarter, and you're definitely going to want to buy it after that. Yeah, so if you go to the podcast page on either one of our sites where mm-hmm. you're listening to this episode, um, there'll be a little boxy box. That would be mm-hmm. a graphic box. Connect mm-hmm. it to, to this, and you click it, and then you put your name and email there, and then you're going to get boop, like, boop, boop. discount codes, and you're going to get sent these video of the live experience. Yes. Which which will be fun because you'll be able to like see Luke bite his tongue and turn pink at like 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 please don't don't say further. that and you'll You're notice see the like off mic ten minute conversation N T Wright and I had like I, I what y'all said on mic was good while we were discussing it but uh, even better off mic yeah the thing what they're gonna see is the one joke I didn't say which I greatly regret you were in the middle of like this deep thought which was probably about 14 minutes long and the like an intro yeah some sirens were going off on the road behind us and i wanted i almost interrupted you and said trip trip be careful the nerd police are coming and i didn't and i regret that so much oh. and so you see that on the video which you can get by clicking on the box at homebrew christianity or com. you'll get the video you'll get the 30 percent off code and the free shipping so you need to do that yeah and even if you don't want the video or the discount you should do it just as a sign of affection for luke but mm-hmm. you, the other thing you can do and I, if you listen to luke's podcast you should go ahead and rate and review it because that's a, that's a free affirmation of his well-being yeah. um and you know, considering all the difficulties that he has to conquer to yes. use complete sentences be entertained to actually read the book before like you should really affirm him yes do that and share with your friends but this is like the perfect episode to share because no one this if you've never listened to a podcast before like there's no better introduction than an introduction that's over 15 minutes long (laughs) i i think that's completely true and you should also know like we actually put work into this like we, we we planned and prepared we've been this is like the seventh revision of the outline for the intro and i think this is the best one yet so and we had like uh noble brewing company sponsored uh beverages non-alcoholic obviously obviously like all craft breweries have non-alcoholic beverages and kegs that are distributed in the bottle out of thingsies Mm -hmm. and right after it like they won at the world beer cup or the great american beer contest whichever one was right then like they won like two days later yeah like place 
at the now root beer uh, last last in the desert, which helped sponsor it and had goodies for everybody. Like it's about to come out, mm-hmm. so you can go watch it. And if you're a minister or whatever and want to host it at your church, you can put, go to their website, which is lastdaysinthedesert.com, and you can host it. You can listen to Luke's interview with Rodrigo or in, you your look, interview. When's your interview coming out? With you and McGregor and with Bonnie Curtis, who's one of the producers, who is a, a Texan. She grew up in Dallas, Texas. You know where she went to school? Where? Wildcats, AC Wildcat. She went to my alma mater. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. She yeah. was really cool. Um, and you will appreciate this. After a wonderful conversation about how growing up in the Church of Christ, she said it in the interview. Yes. He told a story like about how doing a Jesus movie impacted her faith and helped her think about it. And and then she had done just enough research about homebrewed to give me a hard time about the Lakers on the wow. podcast. She sounds great. So, yeah, she's high quality. That's what church. That's what you get with the Church of Christ person in your podcast. I think really what that is is a statement that you need more of us on homebrewed Christianity. I think it's going to help baptize that podcast and bring favor of the Lord. Everyone will know who N.T. Wright is because mm-hmm. he's been on both podcasts before. And if you like the New Testament, that's where he got his initials. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you ever use that joke with him? N- no. Yeah, because I didn't either because I thought everyone else has used that joke. But what about Greg Boyd? So Greg for, Boyd? But for people like me that don't, we, like, he's don't, not been on aren't Christians. Yeah. yeah. He, he's got, his PhD is from, like, Yale or something? I'm not 100% sure, but he is. I thought it was Princeton. Princeton, okay. What's it? I don't know the difference. Um, it was on Charles Hartshorn. Who? Charles. Process philosopher. Yeah, process, which I, everyone learned about on your process webinar, which is a great processed food discussion because that's no one wants processed food like you were saying the other day in your webinar you know whole um, oats fresh vegetables yeah. greg boy he's a mega church pastor with an ivy league uh, training education brilliant guy comes to it from a more charismatic background i guess he the point is he believes in demons and stuff and yeah. he's well-educated guy pastor brilliant everyone knows Richard grew up atheist so that's right. So he was like an atheist who then came back to Jesus, encounters a demon, tells a story, freaked me out, mm-hmm. and I did not ask a follow up question because I <laughs> thought it would be like an awkward <laughs> moment. Um, but I really appreciated what Beck said on your podcast. Yeah, about it. He that yeah, was Beck, the nice version of the follow up I had thought of. Very diplomatic way of saying that he has a different opinion on it. But Boyd and Beck are friends. They were at a conference. No, no, no. Together. I mean, it was it was yeah. fun. And uh, like, other than the fact that um, the uh, Bible lectures at Pepperdine uh, lacked a significant amount of diversity outside of the white men uh, that were there, uh, <laughs> which that, how do you know that? How do you know who was at the Bible lectures? I I asked if there was anyone. <laughs> Like I, I was like, when when Tony told me about this, like, oh, but like, is there is there someone that would probably do the podcast that's connected to it that's maybe not? Anyway, but my only point was <laughs> this podcast, while having very similar gendered and skin tone, does have a one diversity, which is a theological diversity around the issue people tend to avoid and not talk about. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is cool. Even if uh, next year when you're in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we're going to do a live podcast uh, of, of I, yes, the diversity quotient will be significantly different. It'll be high. I definitely and people are going to know what's up because this thing sold out next year. I think here's what we should do because they'll listen to it mm-hmm. and they'll have seen videos. We don't even tell them who's going to be on the podcast. Boom, just a we surprise just topic. Because then people that show up are coming for the theological party and the hip hype, and yeah. there's like, what's what's going to happen? A ruckus? They're in it to win it. They're not in it just to see a celebrity. Yeah. They want to win it. They're in it to win it. I think that's. I think I'm 100 sold. Doing another live event would be a great idea. I and when people listen fun. to this, Texans are going to be like Luke. Well, why, 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 why does Trip do these things and you can't do them? And you'll say, I work at a church. There's a sound person. Maybe I should do it. Yeah, so I'm talking about. Like, wow. The public needs to make demands on him. We, I, I think so. So my mom, my dad, who are the two people who think that's a great idea, email it in. We'll start working on it. I think that's a brilliant suggestion. No, I ain't the line podcast. Your dad should interview you. I've heard y'all <laughs> talk before. And, and he should either tell embarrassing stories or bring up arguments he's had with you for years. <laughs> And quote things that you would never want to say anymore. Like, do you remember that time, like when you were 13 and you told me, well, I am a four point Calvinist. I just I'm not sure about the fifth. Yeah, I can't. Irresistible. Yeah, I can't do that. Yeah. OK, so bringing dad. I appreciate you bringing my dad into this equation. Thank you. You well, really, like your dad. He's he's a likable guy. He's way more likable than I am. Well, that and your dad likes Peter Rollins. Mm-hmm. And so y'all went and hung out with him when you were here and Rob. But. I, you didn't email me even I, after that amazing interview we did that you didn't post. I, like, I remember the email back when you were like, "Trip, that'd be great. We should totally do it when you're booked." I was I was out there and I thought you were just going to be at Pete's house because you guys used to live together. When I interviewed Pete the last time, you were just at his house, or your wife walked in the back of the screen, and so I assumed when I got to Pete's house, it would really be a joint living commune between oh. the Rollins family. And him, the full of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I just assumed you were going to be there, and that was really just a faux pas on my we, part. He is in our family picture last year. <laughs> Who, who's that? Who's that Irish philosopher? Oh, that's just Uncle Trip. No, no, uh, Uncle, the, Uncle Pete. Yeah, th- that, that's that's the 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 kids in the dogs, me, Alicia, and Pete. And and, you know, we all have our bright Easter colors on post Easter. I'm rocking a seer sucker, and there's oh. Pete in uh, very dark earth tones. That's a shot. You want to know us? You want to know? Do you bring this up with him next time? Uh, you want to know why Pete always wears like gray and black? To add a little bit of color to an otherwise gro- gloomy life? Is that why? No, no, no. I found this out. He's colorblind. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah fun of the on colorblind. Like, how do you know your wardrobe goes together? He's colorblind. That is yeah. a great piece of trivia. And one of his friends was like, he was, I guess, traveling or whatever, and and Pete had no clean clothes. So his friend was like, oh, here you can use some of mine. And whatever the brand of like boxers his friend had, he really liked. And he mentioned it. So his friend sends him some, uh, you know, signs him up for whatever the okay, delivery sure. thing is. Pete, unaware that these are like bright colors, like, you no know, clue. green and red. And so, you know, if you if you live in the same house, like there's one piece of color on Pete and he doesn't he wasn't responsible completely it. unaware just like wow. rocking the turquoise undies good for him good for him we really needed to cover and i'm glad we got to it was pete rollins underwear 
And I feel like we've got that taken care of now. And that's a really good thing because I don't know how people could experience a podcast with that without that information. You know what else people can't experience? What's that? The videos, unless they sign up. <laughs> oh! And uh, they can't experience you and McGregor playing Jesus unless they go see Last Days in the Desert. And mm-hmm. they won't experience us actually talking about religion unless they send in questions. So, exactly. Um, I want you all in your car right now just to give a little hand to Manny, the podcast editor, who probably cut 10 minutes out of what you're hearing right now. <laughs> and uh, prepare yourself for uh, some devil paloozing. Let's nerd, nerd, nerd up, nerd down. What? No. Yeah, it's, it's close enough. Hello, all listeners. This is Manny, the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast Editor. These guys talked forever, so I put all the extras at the very end of this podcast. Enjoy. What is up, Doctor Jones? Yo, I think you should just pick that up so you don't have to lean over like that when you talk no, into I it. I like it. Oh, you want to hold the burp and you don't hear it. Oh, praise God. All right. So this is the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast. And the greatest thing about Homebrewed Christianity Podcast is that I get to hang out with cool people like you. And this is like episode 978 of the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast. What, what year did you start the 2008. podcast? 2008. That's old. That's before the internet. I know. I, Al Gore had barely thought of tubes at that point. <laughs> And he's like, well, you got these tubes, and I want to save the planet, and I like podcasts. And one of the coolest parts of having a religious podcast where you like Jesus and don't hate the planet is there's a very small group of people you have to compete against. <laughs> Making you the number one yes, podcast I'm talking about. in that demographic. In sheer longevity. <laughs> so, like, when people start listening to, to Luke's... Uh, I, I, Norsworthy, newsworthy with Norsworthy, is, but that's like the least nor like newsworthy name of all time. <laughs> I, I really feel like he has no friend in social media marketing when you come up with that name. <laughs> but it, it's okay. His smile is worth a million dollars. Anyway, one of the convenient things about having like episodes going back from two thousand eight is even if they are ninety minute dialogues with academics. Just the sheer volume. When one nerd finds you, they downhold, download 500 episodes so you can taunt people like him and be like, yeah, yeah, well, that's all good. Last year I had like, I don't know, 1.75 million downloads or something like that. <laughs> you can do it. But it's really just because you have a collection of nerds. The coolest part about the Internet is being able to find small niche markets. So with that in mind, we should probably welcome up here. The I, new, I was trying to just not even have him. The new kid on the block. Yeah. All right. Luke. So don't. Just boo Luke. What's his name? I forget. His Newsworthy. Five, I, Norsworthy. Newsworthy. Yeah, it's really hard Norsworthy. to remember. Really hard. It's Luke, can just come over here. Come on, Luke. Luke Norsworthy. It's a podcast, so you should use a microphone. You learned that at year two. It's all good. No, yours isn't even on. So that was perfectly set up by Trip And or my sound guy. But... Here's here's the thing. I had this idea. You had an idea. I had an idea Is that there are like two thousand people come to Pepperdine uh, this week to talk about uh, Jesus, God, the Bible, and things like that. And I thought, well, we've got a book I'm super excited about that's going to come out that very same week. Why not piggyback on the Pepperdine Bible lectures and put together my two favorite podcasts? And have a battle of the podcasts live at Malibu overlooking the ocean. I mean, Why wouldn't you do that? I don't know why you wouldn't. 
Yeah. So I'm really here as the um, token Christian, right? <laughs> like the, the chances of you two going to heaven do it, do it. increase dramatically just because you might touch my leg on the way up to heaven. There's a button. Oh, did I turn off the button? And that's God. Yeah. God just muted Tony. No, it's seriously great though. I'm, I really appreciate <laughs> the honor. The machine silencing the, like the reprobate. Just There's the devil. Did God kill your microphone? <laughs> Is there a mimetic interpretation of it? Because. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is this Have you guys really ever done a working? podcast before? Because none of these mics work. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast? What? How long have you been doing it? Um, I have less than trip with total number of uh, podcasts out there. Maybe 160 or something like but that. But, dude, here's what's incredible. It's like you, you're kind of an up-and-comer on the scene. You're new on the scene. You're getting killer guests. like In the smile. Show everybody. <laughs> Look at them. You, Look you at get the amazing get guests right off the bat. You got amazing. It took him, I don't know, years and years to get Rob Bell. You like in episode years. three get Rob Bell. Uh, sure. How did right. you do that? How did you pull that off? He's the smile? It's the hair? Smile. It really was that. They said, we want to do a podcast, but there are no Christian podcasts out there. <laughs> and so I said, well, here's the weird thing. It's like I actually go to church, and I'm a Christian. And Rob said, that's just like me. Used to be. I was about to like say, I used to be. Okay. I was about to, Tony and I go to church more than Rob Bell. Okay. <laughs> combined. Maybe combined. No, like, I've missed like eight weeks of church service I wasn't hurling in my whole life. Can I tell you, the, the last time I interviewed Rob, he accused me of answering a question with a vague answer. Yeah. What? <laughs> That's like accusing the Pope of answering a question with Latin. <laughs> it takes, t you know... Talent respects talent. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, here's, so you're a pastor. Trip's a fired pastor, former pastor. <laughs> yes, I'm about pastor. to be one, too. I'm you're about actually to be... a pastor. Yes, I'm a pastor of a church. As, until this episode Yeah, probably for about two weeks or so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many people in your church, okay, you, you are pastor of a Church of Christ congregation. Yes, I am. True church. Uh, the true church. Do you guys use instruments? Until last Sunday, the answer was no. And you, you introduce instruments. Yeah, it's a ukulele. Yeah, it's a, it's a very small one. Yeah, last Sunday was our first uh, time having an instrumental service. And what instruments? So they were like, we got instruments. No singing? Or do you mean instrumental like there was an instrument? Like, because I, drums, I've been to, I've been to an Anglican stuff. church when it's an instrumental service. You cry because it's Mozart and they hired professionals. Yeah, no. So, bro, you, you mean a like whole dude band. with a whole, whole band? Like a, yes, whole band. people freak hair. out. Uh, there was I'm, the people who were at the church before we introduced the idea are not all the same people who are there now. <laughs> There's a few people who have left. That's like wheat and chaff in it. Yeah, something like that. But uh, we but know that the they're -cord. at a great uh, place. With so the how do you still. go? That's like going from zero to 60, man. You go like from total. How, how old is this congregation? Uh, it's like 40 years old. So 40 years, no instruments. And what's yes. your average age? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Older than the congregation? Um, well, I would say it's a little bit old, but not Tony Jones old. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am definitely the oldest guy up here for the for the moment. <laughs> for the moment. Yeah. Okay. Of the people in your congregation, how many of them, what percentage of the people in your congregation, the congregants in the pews on Sunday, yes. have ever heard 
of N.T. Wright or Greg Boyd? I, I, I quote N.T. Wright a lot. I was actually I co- that does, I'm asking how many people have heard of him. Because I, I mean, not saying that that would that, be they actually listen to your yeah, sermons. It's an assumption. <laughs> well, I, I, in that way, I guess my sermons are kind of like your books. <laughs> no one pays attention to either of them, right? Hey, bro, as long as they buy them. I know. That's I don't right. care if they read them Which as long convenient. as they buy them. Hey, what, it's, it's convenient because Richard Beck's brand new book is right out there. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you read it as long as you buy it. Yeah. <laughs> What's amazing, in heaven it counts that you read it if you buy two copies. Boom shakalaka. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of Church of Christ, yes. can you give us a little, because we're about to have a Church of I Christ. Know. He already complained about my Twitter comments we're, not even getting it straight. We're about to have a Church of Christ mm-hmm. author yes. on the podcast. It's mm-hmm. his inaugural time. Not on your. He's been on your podcast many times. Yeah, many times. He'll but be on Trip's podcast for the first time. That's exciting. Tell us, give us a little background, because a little background on Church of Christ is going to help us understand who Richard Beck is Let me tell you exactly what happened. Jesus created the church. In what year? 33 AD. Okay. And we are the true (laughs) descendants of that church. Just bypassed everything. To like 19-oh-whatever. Yeah, Yeah, 06, yeah. 1906, like... Restorationist in movement. Between 33 yeah, what and happened in between 33 and 1906, you're kind of out of luck. That's even like more confident than Hegel. So, well, if you got everyone that laughed, five nerd points. I appreciate it. That's right. 19th century German idealism. What, what? Shelling reference is coming next. And 19th century German idealism would be an example of something that's not yeah. of the church. Yeah, thank you. It's, probably not, it's probably not taught at their schools. Yeah, you're going to have to bring some of these down just a few levels for me, and I appreciate you, you doing that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So yeah. Germany is a country in Europe. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Got it. When you say 19-something, that doesn't mean 19th century. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I've, it's great for you to fill me on some of these details. A few yeah. other things I'd appreciate learning about that you guys know a lot is, uh, like, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, I know nothing about it. Have you ever held a D20 in your hand, or is that too many? Is this too big for you? I don't know what that means. Yeah. Probably like you got, you got a lot of your listeners probably don't know what like uh, prom was. So I could tell them about that I, too. I mean, given that I was homecoming queen and went to 13 proms, you know, when you're a competitive swing dancer and love Jesus so much, they know you aren't going to try to screw them after they drink. You get invited by lots of hot chicks to prom. True story. I mean, I'm like not joking. I went, I went to prom from sophomore year on at three different schools. They were like, he likes Jesus, but he, he knows how to swing dance. I, you, that's, Luke. Yeah. What do you want? He's going to tell you how Before we bring far, Richard up here. Funny. Yeah, what do we need to know about Tell him? me this why. This five-minute intro is going great. Tell me why you <laughs> like having Richard on your podcast so much because we're about to bring him up here. He Okay, so on my podcast, do you guys know what Bill Simmons is? Sports pod? Sorry. Yeah, for sure. Sports? Yeah. You know, okay. He brings uh, a guy named Chuck Klosterman on his quite often. Do you yeah. guys know Chuck Klosterman? He's written a bunch I of stuff. Know. I think Richard is the Chuck Klosterman to my podcast. He's brilliant. Oh. Whatever he says, I don't always understand it, but I know it's smart. So that's Richard. Brilliant. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck. the author of Reviving Old Scratch, the book that just dropped today, which you're all going to go home with after you buy it. Richard Beck, everybody. Let's bring him up here. Richard, this is exciting. I'm, you should I'm show, scared, up, show really. everyone your pin. <laughs> show, like, 
Like Richard shows up at a book release party without a high quality pen to sign. But you gave me one. I know. And so I got him a, a high quality jot, but it's red, so it matches your yeah, book cover. It does match. So my it's book aesthetically cover. exciting when you sign it. <laughs> I found out that more people buy your book if you offer to sign it and or draw a picture of a duck. That's my new. So if you get my book, you're like, you want me to sign it a duck. or a duck? I got a duck. I have a good bunny or rabbit. a frog. True story. I could do a frog. I could do a frog. That's all I got. Yeah. But um, so you wrote a book about Satan, but you are like an intelligent Christian who's. <laughs> Uh, who doesn't naturally run around worried about, like, demons, drunk in your closet, like, rolling Dungeons and Dragons dice, or, like, playing records backwards. To Although, find out I, I, hey, I'm a there. good, I play Dungeons and Dragons. Am I know I, that's what I'm talking about. You and don't my aunt, lose sleep about it. I remember my aunt, my aunt Barb walked by, and our cousins were playing it, and, and we were all fairly well accused of being Satan worshippers. <laughs> By my aunt Barb, and I said, hey, "Hey, hey, I'm just like an 11th level elf. Like that's Ooh, all. I'm, what class? You know, like, like that's about. Were you like that's a, about as a cult as a god? A rogue, a ranger, <laughs> magic. Like I don't recall. I was more the dungeon master. Ooh, yeah, I was. That's I was, the I was, one that tells stories. I was the one make everyone's dice rolling turn into yeah. a communitarian experience of like fantasy the, excitement. I have never felt more like a nerd than I do right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, just imagine holding two big D20 in your hand and rolling them out, but it leads to, like, conquering Sauron or something. No, I don't, yeah, I don't want to do that, you know. ever. Yeah. So, so the origin of the book, as okay. someone who, you, I mean, you're like, like a trained psychologist, like very critical thinking. The enlightenment is not the arrival of, like, Satan for you. So how in the world did you end up writing a book that About has the devil? and Dave, de- devil on the top? I went it, – part of it had to do with I started teaching a, a, a Bible study. Those guys that read my blog, I started teaching a Bible study out at a maximum security prison. And so I'm out there as a kind of fairly liberal, progressive type and didn't have much use for Satan, demons or whatever. But I find myself out there with inmates and the spirituality they expressed was very charismatic, very Pentecostal. And they spoke about the devil and demon possession all the time and I found myself stuck – with an inability to use that language or speak about their experiences in a way that wasn't ironic or fake or like paternalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also found myself worshiping at a church that reaches out to people on the margins, a lot of people with addictions, homelessness, people on parole, similar kind of thing, very charismatic and Pentecostal. And I didn't want to be kind of like the the educated progressive liberal who – Listen to their language or prayer requests with kind of a wink, yeah. uh, you know. So, so it was. So you're saying you didn't want to patronize them by being more intelligent than them, because <laughs> personally, I, I don't know if that's always the wrong thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I really, I hear you that. help me out. Like, I thought that was yeah. why I was hanging out with Luke. It was just to, like, <laughs> confused. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, so, Richard, I have a question for you. Uh, I read the book on the uh, way out here today. All right. And, uh, it's a quick read. It's a quick great, read, apparently. Great book. And so I Mile read a section reading. in here, and um, I thought you might have wrote, written this just for trip. True or false? <laughs> Tell me if this is true. Okay. Um, page 39, uh, third paragraph. So everyone that bought the book but is yet to buy it, you can go ahead and write it on your hand. Yeah. Like, it's always good to have something underlined and something. Here it purchase. is. Um, The bad news is that you are a sinner bound for eternal damnation. Was that written just for Trip? That was, I think. 
Yes, it yeah, was. It was, it was as, as, I, as I, I contemplate it now. It seems to fit. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I guess like you and my mother-in-law had a conversation. <laughs> so you make the argument that spiritual warfare in the Bible. Uh, do I need to explain that to you guys? <laughs> what that book is? The Bible? It's like Lord of the Rings, but with Jesus? <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah, okay. like that. It's a good library of books. You say that spiritual warfare uh, is a political issue. In, in the Bible. And so my question is, if we just finally get the right person in office, we make America great again. Can we finally dispel this idea that there's a myth of a Christian nation and actually fully become a Christian nation? Will that happen? I think the devil dropped out of the race today. Is that right? Isn't that what happened? Who dropped out? Did T- Ted Cruz dropped out of the Did he? Ted Cruz dropped out of the race. And so... Oh, he's still in. Oh, okay. All right. So, so you know, John Boehner had called Ted Cruz Lucifer in the flesh. But I guess he's still in. So there we go. Um, Anyway. So how is spiritual warfare political? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's it's more than political. I think that's a big part of the book. I think one of the arguments of the book, the first part of the book argues that progressives, liberals tend to tend to politicize spiritual warfare, and they reduce it to social justice. So when they see themselves as fighting evil in the world, it's systemic evil, it's injustice. Um, And and so the first part of the book kind of makes that argument. That's what it looks like. Uh, But then it goes on from there to argue that there's more to it than just a political fight. And I think uh, Tom Wright's talk just over on campus a little bit ago kind of articulates that idea that – that if you lose the dramatic narrative of Jesus clashing with the Satan, um, you just lose contact with how Jesus envisioned the kingdom of God. And for, for liberals, progressives who find that in Jesus' conflict with the Satan is, is somewhat of an embarrassment or we don't really know what to do with it, it's, it's, a, it's mythological language, then you have people who really love Jesus. I mean, if progressives love anything about Christianity, it's, Jesus might not be the church. I support Jesus. I support, who doesn't? Who doesn't love Jesus? You know, and and yet they 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 lack um, the part of Jesus's vision of the kingdom clashing against the, you know the, the the Satan that uh, galvanized kind of how he saw what he was up to or whatever. And so I think both Greg's work, Greg Boyd's work, and N.T. Wright's work were really influential in my journey in confronting that aspect about Jesus. And and uh, as a, it just just became another influence on the book. So uh, in the book, you kind of like tell everyone how the right and left regularly misunderstands demons and the devil and old scratch. Which if people haven't read the book, they're probably wondering who got who a scar, right? Because old scratch looks like a scar <laughs> of a scratch that was deep. Um, uh, one, tell us who old scratch is, but also. Uh, when 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 you read this book, if someone is more uh, conservative or more progressive, like what are you hoping that makes them most uncomfortable? Well, I think I've already talked about the liberal side. The liberal side is that that spiritual warfare just equates synonymously with social justice, and so the book is trying to push back on that and suggest that there might be a spiritual aspect to what what animates and holds together political or systemic injustices. And, and so, um, so it's calling, it's, it's pushing hard on liberals to suggest that there might be actually a spiritual component to spiritual warfare 
Um, but I try to give them language and metaphors that still maybe don't go all the way to believing in literal angels or demons. But it still allows them to use the language of spirituality. For conservatives, it is capturing the political side. It is capturing the fact that um, the principalities and powers are at work and that the political aspect. And not reducing the devil or demons to – and this is where I would push back on my – the people that I do worship with or the men at the prison, when they do reduce demons and the devil to kind of disembodied spirits fighting out there, that is a kind of safe and tame way of thinking about evil and, and missing the systemic aspects. And so it's trying to find this middle ground where both sides are going to kind of learn something a little bit about the battle with the Satan. How does this view of Satan help people deal with suffering? Uh, because as you describe in the book, there's sometimes people when they intellectualize suffering, it leads them away from faith. Uh, do you see a different way of understanding evil and the Satan as a way of helping people uh, withstand and go through suffering? Well, and I think that's something I, I, if Greg can, can speak about this a little bit um, because that's kind of what struck me about his book. I don't know if you've read God at War. But the irony, I think, for a lot of progressive Christians is – and it's an argument I make in the book – is how the, the, our compassion – um, in the face of suffering becomes an, a, the, an acid that burns faith away. The, the, your, the, the compassion we see in Jesus is the very thing that erodes faith in Jesus because as our compassion for suffering draws us into the pain of the world, the horror mounts as you're drawn deeper into it. And as the horror mounts, the, the theodicy pressures build up. And I, and I think that's one of the tragedies of progressive Christianity is the way that compassion undermines faith. And I think it's because we've turned evil into a, to use Greg's frame, a puzzle to be solved. Mm-hmm. Theodicy is a logical puzzle, and you can speak about process, how process goes about trying to solve that. Yeah, puzzle don't tell me. I mean, we'll be right, here right. Till we can get, we could get in a, um But I do think the common move is to, in, uh, where you and Greg might agree, is you know people kind of work the omnipotent side. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where Greg might work it from the free will of spiritual agents and process will work omnipotence a different way. I think people, that's where they do the work. They, they rethink power. All I have to say is, but rather than seeing evil as a puzzle to be solved, Greg's refrain in God at War is it's a reality to be resisted. It's a call to action or, mm-hmm. or what he calls a theology of revolt. And I think that's, for me, a big message in the book for liberals. I'm talking about liberal Christians is, is to – I, most people who lose faith of my acquaintance lose faith over the problem of suffering. Yeah. And I think what they're lacking is this theology of revolt, this idea of that the only theodicy we get in the Bible isn't an explanation. It is it is a call to action. It's a call to the struggle. It's called it it's just a step into the drama. And um and so at some point you just gotta take your doubts and shelve them and you know, act. Well, it, it, what's amazing is the most people that have been ministers at some point recognize how horrible a theodicy answer to someone in the midst of a tremendous grief and suffering and pain is. Um, you usually see it as a spectator, right? Like after a horrible funeral and someone's like, well, they needed another angel in heaven. And you're like, stab my face. Did they listen to my sermons? Um, or you're like, wow, mm-hmm. God must have meant this for good. And you're like, yeah, God's kind of against cancer for small children. I don't know why you have to give God like like it, that's a compliment we don't need to throw to God about that type of power. Um, but the other side of it that I think you bring up in 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 the book really well 
is that the problem of evil, when that's a problem that has a rational conclusion, then you've left the 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 spectrums of the way the biblical texts and narratives deal with the problem of evil. The problem of evil is not a problem to be solved, but one to be engaged with. And and yet, I pastorally, there's always that temptation, right, to fix it up, wrap it up with a bow. And this nice little logical syllogism inspired by all sorts of whatever your favorite philosophers or theologians are. Mm-hmm. Is there a – And I think like, that's a uniquely American thing too. I think Americans have so patholog well, – I don't know. You I, can I, just, call I, just, I, I just I just try to use the word. I don't even think I know what I meant. Uh, have, have, ba- basically, that's now, pretty I'll normal for this podcast. I'll say it simply. Right? Being Being sad – is a disease state in America. Let me say it that way. Does it make That's sense? That's very tweetable. Say it again with gusto. Being people. sad is a no, no, disease. No, no, slower. So, wait, and then, and then hold your book while you say it. Sad. Being. Let me. Yeah. yeah. Being sad is a. You know, the, the, so there is a. We have a really. I think Americans are addicted to being happy. And so there is something about sadness and grief. And just kind of sitting shiva with each other in the grief that, that we are just incapable of doing. And I think the way it manifests theologically is to come up with an answer, right? That, that's a way to make it better quickly. And when and we try to move quickly pastorally, we often do violence to each other emotionally. So if you were an exorcist. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like a question book, that I was requested. That which is a good story. There's a story in the book where but I that's not the story I want to go to right to now. To cast out a demon. But if you were an exorcist, what would be your go-to move? You really <laughs> what would be my go-to move. Yeah. Like, like a, see, a he's finisher. already starting to sound like a role-playing yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. You got to roll for your special moves. You're like, do you want the Holy Ghost kapow? Yeah. Singing. Now, singing. Sing. Sing what? In your book, you talk about singing. If you were an exorcist, oh, singing. Do I need to go to the page number yeah, and pull no, this I'll quote out for you? You did write so it. So right? in yeah, in okay. in the book You need a better editor. In the <laughs> Oh. Yeah. How does how does worship help? In yeah, so in the in the book uh, I talk about that Satan doesn't just tempt us morally. The Satan isn't just a moral tempter, but is also trying to, you know, Causes to give up on hope. And see, this is something I discovered out at the prison. This is another thing. So I came in. I use the words. If, if you guys have read my blog, I talk about somebody being a winter Christian. I don't know if anybody knows that language. But a winter Christian in my language is somebody who kind of mixes a lot of lament in with their spirituality. Okay? And that's kind of my default. Like, like I will go to lament. I will go to kind of the dark thread of Christianity very easily. It's just kind of my default. And I get this kind of from Walter Brueggemann, right? So the the, the there's there's... There's prophetic rebuke and anger, but there's also grief and lamentation. But there's also hope. Like he came up with a recent book. I think it's called Reality. Was it Grief, Reality, Hope? Mm. Anyway. Is that the one he quotes you in? It's, it's, thank you. Yes, he does. Um, that's why it's my favorite book that Walter Brueggemann has ever written. And anyway, uh, but the, the reason I helped Walter come to this insight uh. is, is – You mean other than he, yeah. other than he called – Exactly. Um, why'd you mention that? This is just embarrassing. Anyway, uh, but no, so I go out to the prison, and uh, the very first Bible study I was ever going to do out there, I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, what, what, what's good material? Like, these guys are in prison. 
I'll, I'll let's do a series on the lament psalms, right? That they could connect with that. They're in prison. The, so I start doing that. I start going through the grief and the questioning of God, the accusation, you know, Brugman Psalms of disorientation, you know. And I get about 30 minutes into it, and the prisoners are like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Like, we get it. Prison sucks. Like, 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 <laughs> like we, we are aware that um, where we are, you know. And I was like, so, you know, there's me kind of a – progressive, you know, fairly educated, happy person, you know, like, like, oh, oh, so, okay, so, <laughs> they're like, what we need is a little, I get a little hope, and I was like, well, I don't really do that, I mean, I don't like, like, really, it's not, it's not kind of my normal, it's not a natural move for me, you know, and, 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 uh, and so the singing, so what happened in the singing is, is they had these hymnals. If you've read my blog, you know these stories. And so they have these hymnals on the on the. Tell them your um, blog URL. Experimentaltheology.blogspot. You're so at old Juno. School. Yeah, it's it's a experimentaltheology.blogspot.com. I'm still on Blogspot. It's you free. I have blog posts. Um, but anyway, so they have these hymnals on the thing, and I and we started pulling them out, singing them. So we do this kind of every Monday night. In Abilene, Texas, we do this old-fashioned hymn sing. And those have become really life-giving moments for me and them um, because it's where we kind of reclaim hope. And that's not a natural move for me. Um, because you're but, a therapist. Because I'm a therapist. <laughs> I'm actually not a therapist. I got out of that gig pretty early. Hey, but if it's close enough, it yeah. counts Yeah, it's true. That's yeah. how that's true. this works. I, yeah. I, when I was in supervision, that was the, the number one complaint I got from my supervisor when I was a therapist, training to be a therapist, was like, uh, Richard, you talk too much for a therapist. And I was like, well, I'm trying to help. Like, like Honestly. well, you should listen to their problems first. Like, well, no, I, got, I know what they need I to hear. I understand. People should listen. So I became a professor. Yeah. And you're like, do you so want to waste your now I can just Listen and repeat. Yeah. Now I can just talk and people write down what I say. Praise the Lord. It feels good. Uh, it helps my self-esteem. Amen. Uh, anyway, so you don't have to ever run a capital campaign. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I've learned out there that that to sing all of the poetry of the prophets. To, to I think everybody. I wrote a post about this a couple months ago. But everybody has a natural song. For some people, it's the social justice warriors' anger, rebuke at the principality. That's like your nat- Like you can sing that song in your sleep. That's your go-to song. You can sing it. It's natural, and some of it's grief, lamentation. It's 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 sitting in sackcloth and like that's our go-to. Like depre- you know, sadness is we get that. And some of us, our natural song is hope. Like mm-hmm. you, you probably worship with people that their natural song. And I think to be a mature Christian, you got to learn to sing all those songs, even the ones that aren't natural for you, because it's all about timing. Like when is a certain song? So at the prison, singing is they need some hope. So I've gotten a little bit better at being hopeful. No. Yeah. Well. At the end, like when you start to like revision spiritual warfare, uh, and you start to talk about the invasion of love, you talk about like a different vision of power. All sorts of the regulars on homebrewed Christianity, like either like Jurgen Moltmann, mm-hmm. Open Theist, Roger Olson, starts popping in my head to like John Cobb, uh, to even like Jack Caputo and and weak and and weak weak power and uh, and so mm-hmm. can can you describe? Like what it is that's resonating in 
people from like rather orthodox Christians to ones that aren't in this revisioning of divine power that helps us understand the nature of divine love, which you're talking about in this. It's, I felt uncomfortable liking a chapter about spiritual warfare. That's honestly what it is. <laughs> we might have to edit this that's out of the, the podcast. That's the best I'm, endorsement. I, there you go. Like, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. I had to text a Pentecostal friend. <laughs> He's left messages on my phone before trying to give me the gift of the Holy Ghost. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, old scratch. And he's like, whoa, whoa. And I was like, no, it's the name of the book. <laughs> that was. And the question yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm leaving. Weak power. In. Weak power. Invasion of love. Yeah. You should be a therapist. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I, I can't. No, I can't. I don't know if I can speak to all the theologians you just ticked off. I know, I, but if you I'm pick not, parts of it, maybe if I pick parts of everything it, yeah. else I said that you didn't talk about um, it'll look reasonable. Right, right. So but I do trick. think I do think I make a similar move to some process people in the, at the end. I don't use process theology, but I mainly use the idea that if God's power in the world is love, then love if love is always experienced as weakness, then it's always contestable. It's always fragile and fleeting. It's always – does it make sense? It has to make – it has to insert itself. Mm-hmm. And so I use the idea of a, 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 the apocalypse of love. Love is a an invasion. It is a or, – or C.S. Lewis's phrase is, right, the, the, the gospel story is that the rightful king has landed – uh, landed in disguise and is now calling us to participate in a great campaign of sabotage. And that idea of sabotage is, is guerrilla warfare. Love is inserting itself into a world that's been dominated by the principalities and powers. And, be, and be, because it's weakness, it's always got to be something that's to, paradoxically fought for. It's not going to establish itself naturally. It won't be the steady state, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so it's got to be um, – Connecting back with the theology revolt, it's got to be an intentional practicing and insertion of love. St. John of the Cross put it really well. Where there is no love, put love. That's spiritual warfare. That is the, the apocalypse of love, this great, you know, great campaign of sabotage. And so I do think that idea of the weak power, I do think – I don't make the connection, but I think it fits really well with process thought. All, all beautiful and good things. It's exciting because it's only been 820 episodes of Homebrewed Christianity since N.T. Wright's been on. But he said yes before He's been I avoiding was cool. you, Trip. I know. No. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Oh, yeah. So if you haven't seen this, uh, thank you, Mabob. And you live in Los Angeles. Pick it up because uh, the first week of August, we have adult vacation Bible school with Walter Brueggemann. There will be hand motions and crafts. And if you're a minister of some sorts, there's going to be a workshop sections where you take his introduction to the Hebrew Scriptures back home to use in your congregation. So use one of those things and pick which felt board cutout I found that looks like Walter Brueggemann because I paid extra just to be able to legally put it on stuff. And if you find the picture on the Internet or text it and tag him, I'll enjoy it even more because who doesn't want to have a felt board version of pharaoh that looks like you tagged on you on facebook luckily there's none that looks like nt Wright, but that's because he covers the new testament what is he even talking about? i don't i don't know what's going and on right here just what let's just have you hold it so that we don't have to worry about okay all right luke i first of all i appreciate you being a good sport with this uh, i don't know what you're thinking right now <laughs> but uh 
He he already edited half of what we're gonna do out. Like <laughs> that's me? smart. No, Luke did. Oh, see. Yeah, I, I mean, I would have. Um, the first time I interviewed interviewed you, I brought uh, a sidekick of mine, and he referred to you as Brother Tom the whole time. Um, and you were a good sport with that, so I know you'll be a good sport right now. Once you've been a bishop for a few years, you learn to be a good sport about a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> As a bishop, did they prepare you for stuff like this right here? Not exactly, no. Um, I think had I seen what was on offer, I... Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> you would have worn your tennis shoes for sheer excitement. <laughs> or my purple shirt, yeah. I missed that as well. <laughs> Five points. That's good. So as we're so as we're discussing the accuser, the devil. Yeah, yeah. What's your first thought as you hear all this discussion about it? Well, my first thought was that um, that's why Fortress sent me a copy of this book a couple of weeks ago, and because uh, uh, like books just come in the yeah. whole time. You did. I will say, as, as a yeah. Fortress Press representative. You, you had when I pitched me. you, yeah, when yeah, I yeah, when yeah. I pitched you this idea of coming to this thing, yeah, you, I know, I know, I know. Enough you you said yeah. I'd love to see the book that yeah, we're yeah. going to be talking about. But the, tr- so. the trouble is, three weeks, six weeks down the road, <laughs> right, exactly. um, there was a lot of other water under the bridge. Um, like in, uh, <laughs> you uh, also uh, said, I've just found out that my wife won't be coming with me yeah, to LA, yeah. so I guess I'm good for a couple beers and a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, actually, you've scaled that down. It wasn't beer you promised. It was gin, and you gin, failed on gin, that promise. Gin, gin, gin. No, I have failed so much. <laughs> that, that's what, that's why I'm here, because Tony promised me gin. I did it, promise it just, gin. It's not, that's not, no, it's just not. Anyway. So, it is noble. Um, we're going to be so, having Pepperdine gin so later in, in the week. So in the, middle, in the middle of everything else I was trying to do before coming here, I did read <laughs> oh. uh, the first half of this book, and I, I much enjoyed it. I mean, it, flattering. Is Richard there? Um, Richard's there. He's disappeared. Somewhere. He's definitely okay. going to listen to this. He, no, just, I, he actually just fainted when you said that you read the first <laughs> no, half of his book. No, so. I, 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 it's, it's, fascinating. it's fascinating to me because of his prison work. My wife used to work in the prison service. You know, we had these surreal conversations at the end of the day, like um, I would say, oh, I had lunch with the bishop today, and she would say, oh, I had lunch with two mass murderers today. And we'd think, <laughs> how, how does that work? Um, and so I, I have thought quite a bit over the last decade or two about just the, the inner dynamics of what it means uh, to, to, to be in prison. And my wife used to work with, with lifers, with long-term mm, yeah. prisoners and so on. Um, simultaneously, I've thought quite a lot about the whole demons and devil business because one of the things that happens when you, when you turn up as a bishop is you get this quiet little visit from a team of two or three or four clergy in your diocese who you didn't know, but they are the deliverance team, and it's under the radar, and they don't make a fuss about it, but the bishop has to know because the bishop has to authorize it. And I learned a lot from them because it's never been part of my ministry. I'm very glad to say I don't, I'm quite happy not to, not to be dealing with that. But I had 250 parishes in my diocese, and from time to time, funny things happen in this parish or that. People get hurt. Somebody wonders what's going on. And thank God that there are people who will say their prayers, who have got other people praying for them, who will go in and do what's necessary. And I'm not a specialist at all. I don't know. But some of you will remember a long time ago, Scott Peck, famous Mm -hmm. for The Road Less Traveled. He wrote a book called People of the Lie. Mm -hmm. And he, as a therapist, started off with the assumption that there's no such thing, really, as demon 
possession mm-hmm. and all that. And as a therapist, he was forced to admit that though in many cases this isn't actually what's going on, there is a residuum of cases where you just have to say something else is happening here which is dark and quite different from the other things which, which we might face. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've always taken that view. I think C.S. Lewis says somewhere, I think it's in Miracles, um, that it, he uses the illustration. Of course, he'd lived through two wars. He said it's like we know when there's a war on that there are enemy spies around, but we probably don't want to believe all the tittle-tattle on the street about, oh, so-and-so's a spy or whatever. And in the same way, we should recognize that there are dark powers that we just need to watch out for, which is one of the many reasons why we say our prayers and pray, pray deliver us from evil and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't want to believe everybody who comes up and says, ooh, there's a demon behind that bush, or ooh, there's a demon who caused such and such or whatever. So there you are. You asked me a short question. I've given you a long answer. That's we should let it, Richard Beck pause because anytime M.T. Wright says, I read the first half of your book, <laughs> that's like... That's like a life achievement moment. Well, you, you, you need to know it's five in the morning in my body yeah, clock, yeah. so if I'm just rabbiting on, that's why. So well, hey, me. Tom, yeah. can I ask you a question, though? Because yeah. one of the things that made me in my book kind of take this seriously was reading Greg's work, but it was also reading yours, Jesus and the Victory okay. of God. Okay. And, 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 and the way you just kind of articulated over there on the campus, the way you framed, and I mentioned this in my discussion, as, yeah. as Jesus seeing his battles is fundamentally against the Satan, not yeah. against the Romans. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. it's an interesting move for liberals because because of our emphasis on social justice, yeah, yeah. there is a temptation to zealotry yeah. and wanting to fight against the bad guys. Yeah, in that yeah. case, the colonial oppressors would have been the Romans. And Jesus right. deflects that battle into a cosmic sphere mm-hmm. and achieves a nonviolent solution. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, but it's very difficult because there are times when the, when the colonial powers or indeed other powers do get taken over and do find themselves being the cat's paw of some dark force. So it's never an either or. And so, so one of the difficulties about the New Testament exegesis of the relevant passages, somebody asked me about this earlier today about the principalities and powers. Um, sometimes it seems as though in Ephesians, for instance, Paul is saying um, we're, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. It's something else going on here. Um, but other times, and I think John is one of them, you see a convergence so that Judas is actually embodying the accusatory force. Pilate, in his debate with Jesus, is being, you know, doing, as it were, the devil's work without realizing that this is how it's all going to turn the other way. So I think part of the deal is that we in the nature of the case, don't understand it. And I think we make it harder for ourselves in the post-enlightenment Western world, precisely a very interesting discussion you were having before about the problem of evil. And I did some research on this a while ago for a book I was writing, uh, and it was a revelation to me that in the middle of the 18th century, really because of things like the Lisbon earthquake, Mm -hmm. um, that the thing splits so that now we think of Jesus dying for my sins, so my evil gets dealt with by Jesus, thank you very much. And then there is this quite other thing called the problem of evil, yeah. and we deal with it with theodicy and all that. Mm-hmm. And that's a, I think that is a novum. I don't think that happens until about the 18th century. And because we are all still in cultures dominated by the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. we still think of that split. And I want to say, no, for goodness sake, bring them back together and see it as the dark and mysterious thing that it is. That splitting, classic Enlightenment Epicurean is a way of making life a bit easier for a while, but it then gets a lot yeah. harder afterwards. And I think we're in exactly that moment right now. Mm-hmm. So I've said enough. No, no, yeah. no, you brought that up. And so 
Ironically, yesterday, having only read your academic books, a friend of mine said, you do know he wrote a book about evil. Oh, okay. And I was like, really? Because Luke and I prepared a whole walk through all of his big books published by Fortress where I found a passage in all of the big books based on Satan, demons, or something, and we were going to have fun and have you summarize them articulately in academic ease, and he was going to ask you a pastoral question. But then I downloaded the ebook, and now I have a question that's exactly that that you pointed out. Okay. And here it is. So – like two parts. One, explain how the Enlightenment gave so many Western Christians the ability to think that human beings are rational agents with free choice who, if informed correctly, would make a good decision, and that 9-11 cluster-cursed all of our ability to uh, keep believing I saw that, that, is, uh, 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 that that's a rational myth to believe in. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it's chapters one and two. I just yeah, uh, it probably is. Um, I, I, I mean, as I say, I think the, the, the you can't generalize because these are huge, vast movements. It's different in France from Germany, from America, from Britain, etc. There was a passage However, where you yeah, talked about yeah. like after nine yeah. eleven, then oh. Tony Blair externalizes oh, evil, oh, oh, labels oh, 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 oh. it, well, and then goes axis of evil and from, all that kind of from, stuff. From my point of view, sitting in in London where I was working when all that happened. It was really very striking that Tony Blair's early rhetoric when he was first prime minister in 1997 um, was really, we've got rid of those stupid Tories, the Conservatives. We, New Labour, are now the people who understand the way the world is and what needs to be done to solve things. And there was this wonderfully naive belief that somehow um, the forces of progress had sort of swept evil away and then 9-11 happened and oh my goodness there's a bit of evil still out there what are we going to do we'll go and drop bombs on it that'll be all right that'll sort it and he he had this extraordinary speech in 2001 just after 9-11 when he was talking like this and it was it was basically messianic and and that strikes me as deeply deeply dangerous and I'm not saying anything I haven't said many times in public in the UK so even if this does go viral um, it's, it's nothing nothing new um but to watch, and here was the real tragedy, I think, that out of the Western world, there were only two countries who had leaders who described themselves as Christians, and those were the two countries who were adopting this amazingly naive, simplistic attitude. There is evil out there. We will go and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, hang on, in the Bible, God deals with evil, and what, uh, the way he does it is through Jesus being crucified. And until you put that at the center and work out from there then you're act- it's probably blasphemous to say we're going to deal with evil without giving that as the root. Mm-hmm. I think you have a quote in there that the line of good and evil is never oh. between us and them. And I think you're quoting someone else. It's, I'm that. quoting Solzhenitsyn. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's after the fall of the old Soviet Union, Solzhenitsyn came back into um, Russia as it then was. And people were wanting him to say, oh, those are the wicked guys there. And he said, nope, I've suffered at their hands, but actually... The jagged line of between good and evil runs right through all societies and all people. So we typically want to project and say it's the evil's over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we move past that and say the evil is, is there, but it's also in me too? Well, the danger with that, of course, is you collapse back into an old kind of 60s liberalism where you just say we're all guilty, we're all guilty, and then nothing happens. That's a way, it's a way of copping out, actually, um, because you know there are things which are done in the world which are radically evil, and we have to recapture the ability to say that – 
while recognizing that we are not the high and mighty ones who have got it all right um, and that we get a lot of stuff wrong as well. That's why stuff has to be done in public, like history has to be done in public, because otherwise people will deceive themselves. What do you mean done in public? Well, I mean, it has to be done with, with proper debate and dialogue. Um, you mentioned Al Gore before. He wrote a book um, a few years ago on the decline of, wasn't the decline of reason, it was something like that. But it was basically on how contemporary, it's, it's a postmodern thing, that we don't do reason anymore. We lob verbal or emotional hand grenades over the wall at one another. And, uh, you know, our political discourse is like that. Seems to me yours is as well right now. But that's, uh, um, <laughs> we might trump you on that. Yes. Thank you. Oh, okay. I, I was carefully avoiding doing that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. So you, when you wrote a book on evil, yeah. uh, and in it you talk about the experience of writing a book on evil well, and, and, and your conversation with Maggie, and I'm interested yeah. in how you – and uh, like how does this – Writing a book on well, evil demons and stuff. It, what was the experience? It was. It was. The, the, the book got written because. Uh, okay, after I did the lectures on the resurrection and all that, which eventually turned into Surprised by Hope, I thought the obvious thing to do is, is write the book on the cross. That's been delayed until right now, but um, I. As I was thinking about it, I thought, actually, you can't write about the cross unless you've got a clear idea of what evil is and if God is dealing with it. So, so I, I gave some lectures in Westminster Abbey on, on evil. And that was 2003. And then they turned into the book Evil and the Justice of God. Mm -hmm. But um, it's funny. My, my wife, Maggie, who is responsible for many good things in my life, put her finger on it. She said, because they wanted me to make a television program about it as well, which I did. Um, and she said, you're not going to make a television program about evil. Said, you do that, bad things are going to happen. And I said, oh, sweetheart, you're just being, just being superstitious. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very difficult year. I wouldn't want even to tell you half of it, but 2005 was... All sorts of things happened, which, okay, they're coincidences. They just all happened to cluster around that time. Um, I feel the same about the book I'm finishing on the cross at the moment, the lectures I'm doing at Pepperdine. I actually got a team of people to pray for me around that because I just thought, I don't want to go into this mess unguarded. And, and I, I'm quite sort of unemotional about that mostly, but I just have learned over the years that, um, that yeah, stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Somebody said that. No, I would, I would, I would agree. I mean, I just think mm -hmm. you just, I, I think the world gets a little bit more haunted for you, and you just, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you just, you, I think you're, you're, you become more humble in, in what you think you actually yeah. know is a fact or not, yeah. and yeah. so you let go a little bit of the kind of the, the disenchantment. And the word disenchantment in my book is that just borrowed from Charles Taylor's yeah, yeah. use of secular age, the secular yeah. age, and and so your world becomes a little bit more spooky and enchanted, and, and things on the edges are, yeah. are a little less certain. And, and it's funny that it should be demons that are making that happen rather than angels. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, can I jump in with a question? Can I? For, for Brother Tom. Yeah, um, brother Tom, because my, my preacher's back here calls him Brother Tom, so I'm going to call you Brother Tom. Um, but, okay, but when I hear you describe the cosmic conflict, that makes me just think of apocalyptic and Pauline scholarship. 
Yeah. And but I know you're getting beaten up from some of those apocalyptic scholars, and I, and and so not not no. look. It's very so, late. He's, but, no, it's all right. It's okay. But, but, but does it make sense? though? but it seems like yeah. to me you are. This is a, this is an ad for my most recent fortress book, which is Paul and his recent interpreters. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. you can purchase which right now. Right it's for sale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But but yeah. so can you speak about that? Because when I hear you describe yeah. Jesus yeah. and the Satan, it sounds very apocalyptic yeah. In, yeah. In, yeah. in Lewis Martin's yeah. vision. But then yeah. but then yeah. so I. I don't know if – can you speak about that maybe misunderstanding or, yeah. or, or debate? That might be a little inside there's, baseball, but – Well, it's, it's tough because there's been endless debates over the last 20 years about simply what this blessed word apocalyptic means and how we should use it. And to put it crudely, and this is part two of the book Paul and his recent interpreters – those who currently write in Pauline scholarship and say we are giving you the apocalyptic view have distanced themselves from actual first century Jewish apocalyptic and have made something they call apocalyptic, which is really a sort of Bartianism, which is about nothing good coming out of history and God simply having to invade. Martin uses the word invade all the time mm -hmm. um, in a way which denies the historical continuum entirely. And it's really frustrating because what they're reacting against is not actual first century Jewish views, but against Hegelianism, against oh. the idea of a progress which is going on, which will gradually get where it's going. I get accused of that, which is rubbish. I've never taken that view. But when you look at what many, many first century Jews who wrote books we call apocalyptic, one Enoch, fourth Ezra, two Baruch, whatever, they are telling the story of Israel as a dark and tragic story, and they are seeing God's purpose working nevertheless through that towards something which is not simply the apex of a, 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 a climactic pyramid, but is, is a new thing and yet is the thing which was promised. One of my graduate students said it like this. He said, God acts surprisingly, shockingly, startlingly, as he always said he would. In other <laughs> words, you know, this is, you've got to say yeah. both those things at once. And the trouble with the Martin thing is that I think it's getting traction. And, but tell me if I'm wrong about this. I, I've asked one or two people in that school, why is this stuff so popular, granted that it is not, in fact, rooted historically, which it isn't. And I think part of the answer is it appears to be a way of reading Paul without being a fundamentalist because the fundamentalist will say, um, oh, Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven mm -hmm. and all of that. And they say, no, this is God's victory over evil and it's much more dramatic than that. How much of it do you think is like the sexiness of attaching that reading to weird atheist philosophers' readings of Paul? Well, like, now, yeah, this is yeah. obviously a super yeah. nerdy moment, but for all of you that were in the high gravity philosophers' reading Paul class, you'll notice that all five of the atheist philosophers that read Paul will love Martin's apocalyptic version precisely they, they for that They may. They thing. may. I, I don't think Giorgio Agamben is an atheist. No, no, no he's, he's not. No, no, quite. But, but like, Badu, yeah, 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 yeah. uh, in Thomas. But, but um, the, the, the lights went on for me. That was just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That you were, like, correcting me on Agamben. Yes. I was like, no, he's not. <laughs> but, like, the fact that we just had that exchange, I was like, that's awesome. Because <laughs> Pete and I had argued about whether we have him, and I was like, no, you can't have Agamben. He's not an actual atheist. And Pete's like, yeah, he is. I was like, no, he's no, no, not. No, if no, you had no, to no. check this, and then yeah. we were like, yeah, I win. You have to read. <laughs> check it, Pete Rollins. You, you have to. You have to. <laughs> Someone tweet him right now. You have to read his book on the kingdom of God. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the, the thing is this: um, the, the tragic figure in the middle of the century is Walter Benjamin. Yes. And Walter Benjamin, it was who. Um, has this awful moment at the start of the Second World War because he has really believed um, 
or half believed uh, through his friendship with Sholem that something really good is going to come out of the progress of history. And, and there are a lot of people in Europe in the 20s and 30s who thought that. Some of them were communists who thought that that's where it was going. Others were Nazis who thought that that's where it was going. And so when Hitler and Stalin have their pact, the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact in 19, uh, late 1939, Benjamin just sees this is the end. And so he writes that tragic final piece, which is that no good thing is coming out of history. And he has Paul Clay's uh, thing of the angel of history, uh-huh. um, the, the, the angel, yeah, which just He's says... He's walking backwards uh, looking yeah, down. That, that's right. And oh, history, is a, yeah. history is a pile of rubbish <laughs> and something radically new has got to happen. Now, this is... This is the failure of an atheist Jewish dream, as in Walter Benjamin. Yes! And the, but the tragedy of this, the tragedy of this is that this was picked up by people like Kaiserman, who, for whom I have enormous respect. But Kaiserman was imprisoned by the Nazis. I mean, he's, he was a hero. Um, Disciples but, aren't always perfect on but, their exegesis. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. but, but the, but Peter. The, but the point, the, the, the point is... In New Testament scholarship, the idea that the early church were expecting the second coming and were disappointed. This is a modern myth resonating with the modern post-Hegelian, post-Marxist myth yes. of the failure of expectation. <laughs> I uh, feel uncomfortable agreeing with this, you so uh, much. Yeah, yeah. It's going to ruin I'm, my progressive street cred. You, this is, like, awesome. You're uncomfortable about you agreeing with me. How do you think it makes me feel? <laughs> 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 but, ah. so... So, I mean, basically, back to the apocalyptic thing. Yes. There's, there's a lot of this stuff which is out there, and I think, I think it's ill-informed. Okay, yeah, and, I hear you saying. And, and, but, I mean, the, the, the trouble is I really do want to say Paul is, in the right Jewish sense, an apocalyptic thinker. But that doesn't mean he doesn't believe in salvation history in some sense. It doesn't mean he doesn't believe in justification by faith, as Douglas Campbell thinks, etc. There's a huge amount of misconceptions, and you just need to sift and shake them until they gradually mm-hmm. come back into shape. How many pages in the Campbell's book were you just irritated? Oh. (laughs) Like, I started reading it once you start checking the footnotes. Probably about as many pages as he was irritated in my book. So, I mean, that's just, yeah. yeah. So, you said you're working on a book on the cross. How would you understand this, uh, like, a theology of the cross? Like, you've been in lots of battles over theologians very worried about being always on Paul's side. Um, And then in... The 20th century, there's been this revival of theology of the cross that revises suffering, divine power, these type of things. How do you think a Pauline theology of the cross and the early churches wrestling with it would kind of engage those conversation points? It's it's a huge question, probably too big for this evening. I tried to say something about about this at Pepperdine just now, um, very briefly. Uh, Paul never says the same thing twice about the cross. And many of the passages which have become famous in Western Protestantism um, don't actually quite mean what the Protestant tradition wants them to mean because we've taken them and flat... I mean, parade example, Galatians 3.13. The Messiah became a curse for us because it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And most people in Western Protestant churches assume that the next line is going to be so that we could be delivered from the guilt and penalty and power of sin. It's not what Paul says. He says so that the 
blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And, and if, you, if you went down the wrong road after <laughs> verse 13, it shows that the controlling narrative in your head is wrong. Paul sees the cross as the thing which basically deals with, as I said this evening, with the powers that have enslaved the world. You know, the, the Gentile mission can happen because the powers who enslaved the world have in principle been defeated on the cross. And I know the phrase in principle is a kind of a weasel phrase which means I'm really not quite sure what to say about this but I want to say it anyway Um, but uh, something has happened as a result of which there is this radical new possibility and uh, you see that again and again so I think with Paul there is a convergence of saying and it's Galatians 1-4 which Lou Martin divides up the Messiah died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age you need both and you need to understand how both work together otherwise the thing just falls apart so we need to balance out trip over here and bring in an actual pastor to the conversation so greg thank you for joining us thanks for thanks for getting my back up here ever knows greg boyd yes yes hi so we've been talking a lot up here just a ton of talking yes and for a pastor it's hard for you not to be the one talking i mean that's part of what we do is we talk Uh, they pay me to talk yes 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 so where do you want to jump in on this? There's a lot. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I, I guess I'd say, I, I'm not a Paul scholar, so I'm not going to wing the details of that. But uh, going back a little bit, when you're talking about how it's, fun, it's, it's a fundamental aspect of the narrative that I think has been more often than not underappreciated, underemphasized in uh, Western theology, that um, uh, Jesus entered into this thing as part of a cosmic battle and to bring an end to this cosmic war. And if, if that gets uh, marginalized or just eradicated because it's too hard for modern people to believe in, you fundamentally change the, the meaning of, of, of the cross, the meaning of the gospel, uh, the meaning of everything. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't see the, the belief in, in, in the demonic realm, Satan, principalities and powers, elemental forces, all of that, as being um, just part of the trappings of the gospel. It, it really it affects... At the core yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, did you know Walter Wink, the late, yeah, great yeah, Walter Wink? Yeah. Because uh, Walter was a good friend of, of mine, and many conversations we've had down this line. He had a real struggle because he could see that in the fundamentalist world, people were wanting to blame everything on demons right, right. doing this, that. And he would say, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. And he was very keen on this idea, that, and w- which I think I'm trying to re-inhabit from perhaps a slightly different angle, that... Uh, that, as I said this evening, humans are given by God the power to reflect God's love into the world. But when we worship idols, we make over that power to things which don't have any power of their own. So idols work on borrowed power, and they keep that because they they make us do what they want us to. Um, And so only when the grip of sin is defeated can the idols be robbed from their power. I think Walter would have agreed with that. I wish he was still alive so we could ask him. But how are you with that? Does that make sense to you? Uh, Yeah, it it makes total sense. Um, My worry about Wink is that um, he he, he wanted to hold on to the reality of the demonic. He had a a sense about that both in the narrative and in the world. Um, But on the other hand, he wanted to kind of reduce it to uh, social categories. Uh, yeah. So it's the interiority yeah. of social yeah. groups yeah. and the spirit of core groups. And and, yeah. and at that point, then, you take away really the, any sort of ontological over and againstness mm-hmm. uh, towards humanity. And uh, I, I, I w- wouldn't be comfortable with that. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think I, I think I agree with that. But I think that the whole conversation in the Western Church is still taking place, if we're not careful, within the split-level world of the Epicurean Enlightenment vision, where God, angels, anything else is a long way away, and the world just goes on its merry way down here. Yeah. And that's based. And the, the funny thing is, people think that's a modern view. It isn't. It's it's Lucretius in the first century BC. Very clear and. And evolutionism, as opposed to evolution, goes with that. That is, evolutionism as an ideology that says it must be so and there must be no invasion from elsewhere. Right. Whereas yeah. when we look at the biblical, I think, a biblical worldview in which heaven and earth actually overlap and interlock uncomfortably and sometimes apparently disorganizedly from our point of view, mm -hmm. then there are all sorts of dangerous possibilities as well as positive possibilities. And that's where I would locate it. And I, that helps me a little bit in terms of finding appropriate language, whereas if you have that split-level thing, it just falls apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. We're agreeing. Good. Something must be done about this. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I could bring you two together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard, you're sitting over there awfully quiet right now. Well, I'm just, hey, this is a dream. I'm sitting and talking to like two heroes of mine. So, um, <clears throat> Three? But, hey, so, so, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So, but Greg, you've, you read the book, and, you get, and thank you for, for doing that. But so, so, so how do you feel about... The way I handle it. Be honest, because I'm kind of walking this middle ground to, to, to re rehabilitate the demonic or the satanic for a skeptical audience. And so I might not have the ontological againstness part yeah, yeah, really yeah, strong. Yeah. But anyway, so. Um, well, what I'd say basically is in this insightful and highly important <laughs> masterpiece, Beck helps. There you go. Did you read the back of your book? I did. Dude, I endorsed you. What more do you want? You Could you repeat what you said before? But you guys disagree. And when I saw that you endorsed the book, I was I was glad. That I didn't I want to hurt his feelings. That's not possible. But I think what? Okay, but you're Okay. You were, I think, in this book, sort of like a, a Schleiermacher on the demonic. You guys sort of look, like Schleiermacher was was trying to translate um, some of the realities of, of, of Christianity to his culture. And so he wrote that uh, letters to the cultural despised things, and and that's kind of what this is. I think um, I, you know we're all in process, and I, I know Richard's in process, and you know he's and, and this is a work in process, and he's inviting others in on this process, and he's moving in the right direction. I, 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 he's yeah, I, I would affirm much more than he affirms, but he's kind of saying, look, it, you can appreciate. The, there's a reality here. It's kind of like a, a Kantian ding on sick. You know, it's a, the thing that's in and of itself. We can't see anything more about it than that there's something there. And so he's kind of saying there's something there. Uh, but, of course, uh, we're paranoid about thinking of it with, you know, horns and red and pitchfork and hoofs. Uh, and, and so we have to kind of demythologize from some of that. But uh, uh, you don't need to figure all that out to get in the game. That's what I liked about it. He's, in, he's just saying take that next step. Take that next step. Open your eyes. Get involved in this revolt, uh, uh, even if you're not sure what the heck you're revolting against. It's evil, and so I, 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 I think it was good. But Richard, someone could read your book and not know ultimately where you land on the the question of do you actually think there is a devil or not? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that'd be correct. The book is agnostic. Would be agnostic about that. So, why did you? <laughs> News ring with noise ring, where we actually have microphones. <laughs> Why did you feel okay to leave that open-ended and not answer that question? Yeah, you know, I, 
I, wrote, I was writing something on the plane about this the other day, and I, some of it has to do with my being a social scientist. And so, like, I lecture. This is going to be really nerdy, but um, but like, what I part of this hasn't been really nerdy? Yeah, right. That's true. That there was a moment you two where I was completely lost. Uh, but but like, I lecture on dreams, you know, and um, and we can describe, you know, the. Stages of sleep and REM sleep and sleep paralysis. And we can describe dreams really well. But then inevitably a student raises their hand and says, why do we dream? And I go, well, nobody really knows. Like there's multiple theories out there and nobody really knows. But we can describe it very scientifically. And so I think psychologists are very used to being very good at describing the situation on the ground and being somewhat okay with multiple explanations and so i think so i think that's kind of the way i wrote the book i said i agree that there is something a lived reality there's something we're bumping up against there are these things that everybody could agree on even if they kind of might be ultimately part ways on ontology um and i'm just comfortable with that now i don't know if lots of people are comfortable with that but i but so the book was trying to kind of from the ground up say liberal or conservative fundamentalist charismatic or you know somebody who's kind of a Christian atheist, that we can all agree that, that uh, in the words of the great Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that right? So, okay, so Dr. Wright, how do you feel about there being a generous orthodoxy about the actual existence of the devil or the non-existence of the devil? Um, wrong question. The... Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> idiot. But it was it was it was the fourth, it was the fourth it was the fourth word in the sentence that was wrong. You said, "How did I feel?" And the answer is, right now, I'm feeling all sorts of things, but they're nothing to do with that. Um, so I think I think what you meant was, "How did how do I think about it?" Um, that which which is, is at least a coherent question which I can address. My, um, no, my dad's a psychologist. I was taught to ask, "How do you feel?" Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. But you know, when I was Bishop of Durham, sometimes the Archdeacon would say, "You know, Bishop, I feel very strongly." Which I say, "I." I really don't care how you feel about it. Tell me how you think about it. Oh, okay. you, you can't, I mean, it's, it's actually a serious point. What's happened in our discourse, this is a different question, but it's a, at this time of night, I'm going to get away with it anyway. That's what um, I'm talking about. The, the, uh, our discourse has done exactly that because it feels kinder. Instead of saying, I think you're wrong, you say, I feel, oh, I have some issues about that one. And, and it becomes actually talking about me and my interiority rather than talking about the issue. Feelings, nothing yeah, yeah, more yeah, than yeah, feelings. Yeah, but then, but what we do is we say I feel when we mean I think, but then we collapse thinking into feeling, and that's the beginning of that postmodern thing I'm, I said before, where we don't actually decide discuss real issues. We don't know how to marshal arguments. We don't know how to deduce evidence. So, I mean, in terms of thinking about the devil, I think one of the things which seems to be clear in the New Testament and in a lot of the experience of people I know who had more experience of this than me is that actually the demonic, the devil, the demons, whatever, are deceptive. They are, uh, they are mean. They, they hide. They don't do what you might think logically they should do. So just when you think, ah, here is some clear evidence of this, then it'll be a bit wishy-washy, a bit uncertain. And in that context, the only safe way of going at it, it seems to me, is to pray the Lord's Prayer on a very regular basis, deliver us from evil. There's a reason that's there. 
and to go wisely and humbly into whatever battles we are called to fight and not to go looking for battles that we aren't called to fight. Um, it seems to me that there's a real danger of just sort of treating this as a, as a, fun, a fun playground. Is that enough? You got it? That'll pass. Well, how do you feel about it, Luke? <laughs> I feel that Rob Bell says I have vague answers, and N.T. Wright says I have bad questions. So... But show us the smile again. I... Yeah! You know, it, it, one of the questions that I think has to be brought in at some point is, is uh, it, it's pretty clear, if the Gospels are even generally reliable, that, that Jesus believed in the reality of demons. He spent a good portion of his ministry casting demons out, rebuking them. Uh, even one time having a short conversation with Legion. Uh, and he clearly believed in Satan, and that was the central thing that he was about. And I've always had trouble calling him Lord and correcting his theology. Hmm. <laughs> you know, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I do? Um, I think it could also be opposed as, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't believe the things that yeah. I teach? But I think part of the trouble is that the, the, the word Satan used as a proper name, that's why I talk about the saint, Satan with a small s, because it seems to me there is something sub-personal about that entity, whatever it is. And the reason that I would be cautious is because if you say, sure, I, I believe in the existence of a being called Satan, that can be seen as playing straight into all kinds of caricature figures. So I just want to distance sure. myself from that and say, we don't have good language for this. There is a reality out there, but let's just use cautious language rather than saying, bang, Jesus believed in Satan, so I'm going to as well. Actually, believed in Satan is the wrong phrase. But um, uh, Michael Green wrote that book, I Believe in Satan's Downfall, which was in his yeah. I Believe series. He was going to call it I Believe in Satan, and then he realized that's a stupid thing to put on the book. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I believe in you. I have faith in Satan. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Out. But... I, I, you, you're not saying that, I mean, in, in, the, in the New Testament, they use Satan as a proper name. Well, yes, but that's a kind of local convention which means what it means within that first century Jewish world. Our problem is that the word Satan has then had a, a long life in the Middle Ages, in, uh, in witch trials, whatever. Oh, sure. and, and so, it, it, as, as I find myself compelled to do in some other things, I have to step back and say precisely because I want to understand what these words meant in the first century, mm. we have to be careful about saying things which people instantly will think, mm -hmm. oh, yes, I know what he's talking about. It's that stuff so-and-so said in yeah. the 80s. Yeah, yeah I, I, I totally get the need to, like, yeah. distance yeah. Satan from, like, the yeah. God Pan and all those kind of characters yeah. Yeah. and the Middle Ages and whatever. So I'm really with you on that. But then the other side, what concerns me is that by – if we – say, but he's impersonal or going that direction, yeah. you lose that whole thing where in the New Testament he's crafty, he's deceptive, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. he sets traps. But, but that's why I said sub-personal. Sub, sub There's a sort of, and I think C.S. Lewis gets at this quite well in one of his science fiction um, novels where he has this um, unhuman, this this mm -hmm. this character who who has been human and isn't quite anymore mm. it's that sort of there's something there's something missing and it is crafty sure. and it is mean and deceitful um yeah yeah tough mm. stuff how how would you if if you were like zoning into i'm teaching undergrad students take the question of demon and then use it as a place to introduce fun cool nerdy words like hermeneutics and epistemology <laughs> because I feel like if you use it around God, right, 
oh, oh, is God personal or impersonal? People get all hung up. But almost there's way more people in the church who will could think about epistemologies, be they local first century Jewish ones or contemporary 21st century or whatever epistemologies and hermeneutics, the way you're, the science of interpretation. How could like demons, the demonic, this is one of the parts about Beck's book I really liked is it, it's sensitive about the epistemological and hermeneutical parts around that question while engaging the scriptures that helps us then on the back end, he sneaks it around. He's like, hey, progressive Christian, you got to do more than this. And I'm like, oh, my God, he just got me. Um, so how would this conversation be when you introduce epistemology wow. and hermeneutics? It's, it's tough. I mean, there's students and students. And in the present student world, um, quite a lot of students who will study in the kind of class that I might teach come from comparatively conservative homes. Equally, certainly in St. Andrews, quite a lot certainly don't and come up as atheists. They want to read theology or religion because they just got interested in it. And so you're dealing with quite different areas. And for me, that's why I would stick with solid history as far as one mm -hmm. can and only get into that sort of question at a later stage. I mean, it depends what sort of course you're teaching. But it is, that is a real problem. I would not myself start on this ground. I'd start with some quite other things yeah. like why did Jesus teach in parables or something like that. Yeah, well, like you said, first day of class on hermeneutics or theology. Let's talk about demons. Okay? Yeah, just, well, just, you know, what's funny is like the, if you are if you grow up as a minister's kid and like the overeducated part, even in the South, my dad, Baptist church planner, you never believed in real demons or Satan or any of this junk because you believed in evolution, and everyone that believed in any of it thought role-playing games and J.R. Tolkien was evil and maybe C.S. Lewis. Like, that was your, like, experience. Carmen was your best hermeneutical guide to the demonic, and that involves Rocky for Jesus references and counting backwards after the knockout via boxing. And um, so, I like, one but of the... Why, why did you just start talking a foreign language here? I know, it's... We'll, we'll let Greg translate because he's okay. in the United States. But the... <laughs> Uh, there's this, there, I think there's this sense because of the anti-intellectualism of American evangelicalism that a lot of parts of scripture just get bottled up in the, I think Daniel 7 plus Revelation and random parts of Thessalonians equal a chart that involves Russia, bears, and foreign policy. <laughs> Gog and that, Magog. That then you, that then you just demythologize everything sure, Boltman sure. style. Yeah, and yeah. you never even think about it until you have this encounter experience yeah. or 9-11 or something like this that shakes you. And you're like, mm. WTF, human beings aren't the most rational, sane agents that under proper knowledge choose the good. Mm. But, like, all of that talk was attached to I was evil by rolling D20s and playing a dwarf who wanted to be faithful to his dead father <laughs> and avenge or snarg. That's, that's Hamlet, actually. Uh, <laughs> so good <laughs> well it was Shakespeare's birthday just the other day so Shakespeare's birthday your new grandkid it's all absolutely you know that's always a tendency to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah and I think that's a lot of what goes on here you, people find a demon behind every headache and every hemorrhoid and every whatever and uh it's like, at some point, you just outgrow that. And so then folks go to the other extreme and just want nothing to do with it because I tag it with. Yeah. Uh, I had an experience uh, in 1987. 
uh, with a, a, this young lady that I was counseling. I can't get into all the details here, but uh, nine months counseled her in this rural church. I was an interim pastor, and uh, I know some things are peculiar. Wherever I talk about Jesus, she would start to like twitch her head a little bit and grunt. Um, and I am just right out of grad school, and so um, and I, and I believed in the reality of the demons at the time, but it didn't intersect with my. My, my real world at all. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought she must have had some kind of abuse starting in the name of Jesus or crucifix or whatever. So I back off. And so for nine months, it went like this. And, and she made a lot of progress in a lot of areas. But at the end of this nine-month uh, internship that I was doing or, or the, the pulpit filling, I, I really didn't know where she stood with Christ since I was going to press this issue. Um, and I don't know why I decided to do it in a Dairy Queen. Uh, but but uh, Why? I, I think why I, not? I, I thought... <laughs> I thought she, she chocolate dip and salt. I thought I, I thought she wouldn't act out, but I started talking to her about Christ and uh, you know and about. Is that like breaking up with someone in public so they don't make a scene? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what I was thinking. In public. I don't know what I was thinking. It won't yeah. be that bad. Anyways, if you have Dennis the Menace on the side of a blizzard yeah. cup. <laughs> Anyways, it was the devil's food cake. So um, the the uh, I, I started pressing it. She starts twitching her head and grunting, but I didn't back off. And I, I'm really just trying to you know tell her I'm sharing the gospel with her. And then she just exploded in this Dairy Queen. She stood up and was scratching at the wall and spitting, and her head was twitching like this. And, and uh, I apologized, and, but she, she was out of it. She was just doing this. The manager comes out. Well, there's a family there with these two little kids. And, and they're like, they, they bolted. They just like, boo. Yeah, not your normal post-T-ball game so then they, they, experience. Yeah, it's not what you're looking for. And then this manager, this young kid comes out, and, uh, and he, he asked me, he goes, uh, is there a problem? <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm father of lies. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the, the police came and they took her back to the this farm where um, she lived. Because uh, they, apparently, it's, it's, it's a small town and everyone knows everyone. So they had made an agreement with the mother. She'd been institutionalized once before and the mother didn't want her to go in again because then she wouldn't get out until she's 18, blah, blah, blah. I had to go do a funeral, and so when I was done with this funeral, I got a note that said, go to this house because um, there's an emergency, and it was this girl's house. I get there, and this girl had destroyed the house. The police had come and, 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 and dropped her off, and the, the parents finally locked her in the back in this barbed wire fence area of this farm, and the mother wanted me to figure I've made progress before, so I maybe could help this. Uh, so I go back there, and... She, her arms are all bloody because she's been scraping them up against this barbed wire. And she's still doing this kind of grunting, twi- head twitching thing. But then she get coherent again. Um, and she'd go back and forth between these two states. And when she was coherent, she told me, don't try to cross that fence or I'll kill myself. And so I'm honoring that boundary. And at one point, maybe 15 minutes into this, I don't know, but she saw some barbed wire on the ground. And she was in one of these grunting stages, twitching her head. She grabbed this barbed wire and wrapped it around her neck. And then tried to, like, saw her head off. So I had to jump over the fence and tackle her to the ground. And as I'm holding her there, I first of all notice that she's very, very strong. Now, I am about 30 years old at this point. I was buff back then. She's a 15-year-old girl, and she it was all I could do to keep her from being able to, to put that barbed wire back and forth. And I call for help, say, you got to call, you know, ambulance, uh, you know, this is beyond me. As I'm holding her there, and there's probably 10 minutes before the, the ambulance gets there, at one point... Uh, she opens her eyes, and it, it gave me just this, like, like a, it, 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 it didn't, it, she wasn't home. It was like there was a vacancy there. And it was only then, and I had a Ph.D. in theology. <laughs> and it was only at that point 
that it occurred to me that there's a story about this in the Gospels. <laughs> The, the, the level of ignorance astounds me. And, and um, that, that, uh, the boy who was trying to throw himself in the fire, harm himself, here yeah. she is trying to cut her head off. And, and uh, that when he, when he came to the city of Jesus, he would shriek. And every time I bring up Jesus, she would start to grunt and twitch and stuff. And that was the first thing that put a crack in my Western worldview, oh. uh, where I had a theoretical belief oh. in, in, in this stuff. But it, it didn't really impact how I did my life, how I processed anything. So then I got on, I went on this long research project trying to figure out, okay, what is this all about? And I went to conferences and read books, and I'd say 98% of it was just nonsense. It was, it was more like the way pagans cast out demons, you know, with all the chants and the, the formulas and you got to get the names. And it doesn't look anything like the New Testament. In fact, the reason I wrote God at War was, was to finally say, okay, well, we need an academic solid, respectable treatment of this, because otherwise, I can, I can see why people throw the whole thing out, because so much of it is flaco. But see, there's, despite the flaco in us, there's some stuff that's yeah, genuine, yeah, yeah. and um, it makes a difference in how you look at the world and how yeah. you live in the world. And that, and that was Scott Peck's point, wasn't it? That, yeah. that in some cases, there, there really is something which goes beyond anything that psychologists can, can do, um, and, and, and the other medical problems which could start looking like that. You know, mm -hmm. One of my children is epileptic. Sure. She's medicated now, so she doesn't have seizures. But when you see somebody having a major seizure, sure. those are the sorts of things that you think. And then you think, well, hang on, did they know about this in the ancient world? And actually, they were quite sophisticated. They, they, they knew the different difference between quite a lot of different mm -hmm. things in the ancient world. So it isn't just, oh, they believed in demons then, but we now know it's all um, just ordinary illness, because mm -hmm. really it isn't. Uh, Richard, what would you uh, say to that as a psychologist, and uh, how would you respond to that story? We know there's nothing like getting a closing thought to Greg yeah. Boyd and N.T. Wright just telling him what's up. Yeah, Can you just yeah. bring a summation to all this? Yeah, I, no. Uh, well, I think I, the thing that struck me in the story isn't I don't think I can from this distance say say one thing or the other. I think the thing that struck me what you said is the first crack in your western view and i think that's the thing that haunts me about this is that coming back to liberals and progressives um if anything you know they care about colonialism and they care about the third world and yet they won't respect how when you go to those contexts it's a very enchanted worldview and and christianity is thriving in the global global south and it has a very distinctive charismatic character to it and so um, maybe we are the ones that are a bit out of step here with what the spirits do. Yeah, and, and it, it, it isn't – fundamentalists don't have a monopoly on, on closed-mindedness. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing that's interesting is that uh, since the 80s with the whole postmodern turn, increasing numbers of ethnographers have been realizing, accepting that the Western worldview is as much a social construct as any other worldview, and therefore it's illegitimate to try to translate – the experiences of uh, people in other cultures into your categories, so they go native. And the one result of that has been there's been increasing numbers of reports of people experiencing what we would call supernatural, uh, including possessions and, and uh, uh, deliverances and healings and things like that. Edith Turner wrote a, uh, first an article called The Spirits Are Real. She's an anthropologist and, and an ethnographer. Uh, the Spirits Are Real. And then uh, a following book on what was called uh, Experiencing a Ritual. And she recounts there some of the things she was an eyewitness to, towards. 
uh, levitation. I mean, just weird, weird stuff. Uh, but the whole point is, this stuff is real, and it's just the Western worldview that has been refusing to look at that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I think things like that help confirm the reality of this stuff. I think if I were to describe this scene here to my wife when I get back home, she would regard it with as much disbelief as most people would regard levitation. (laughs) This podcast is sponsored by Phillips Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a theological school that offers Christian education in service of intelligent, just, and compassionate religious and civic communities. They welcome students to a safe space for truth-seeking conversation about the Bible, Jesus, and faithful living. They have on-campus and distance learning options. Go check them out at www.wherefaithleads.com. Do you think this podcast would be the first part in our buddy cop movie with our bromance blooming? Mm, I, I I think I think what we should do is 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 let what them movie, decide. What movie do you think our relationship most uh, imitates? Mm, a movie? Yeah, like is it like oh, I'm a, cars? Like I'm like the regular winner, really cool and like Lightning McQueen, and you're like Mater. I don't I don't know what that is. You've I never watched Cars? I didn't, no, I didn't. You only have daughters. That's what it is. I'm, I'm the worst parent ever. What about Frozen? You know Frozen. Yes, I know Frozen. You're Yeah, Anna and Elsa. Um, I could see that. I'm I'm like the joyful one. You're the, the nerd who's in the closet with all the powers to overcome the world. And I'm just this happy guy, girl. And we come together and we can do great things. Um, what about like uh, um, Tommy Boy? Okay, so who is who? Like, well, we have our dad who's running for office. Am I Chris Farley in this one? And then you're... You're... I don't know. Would you rather be Chris Farley or David Spade? Well, Chris Farley's dead, so it'd be kind of bad to be him. So, Tony Jones is Chris Farley. He is getting up there in years, so there's a chance. Oh man, that's what I I can't believe I thought of that movie. That's one of my favorites. And when Chris Farley goes out on stage to pump up the reggae concert, that's one of the funniest scenes in the movie ever. <laughs> what if what if we're like um, this? What if the movie? Oh no, that's not a good one. I was gonna say like Batman where Robin comes in at the end with the Christopher Nolan one, but with Gordon Levitt's, you could be Batman and I could be Gordon, but then Gordon Levitt's never got his own show and it was just like, you're done. We And that would be my character trajectory. I don't like that. You don't want to be done. No, I don't want to be done. I don't know. Can we, let's do sports. Let's do sports instead. All right. Well, clearly, we, we could just be like uh, uh, Shaq and Kobe. Exactly. There is a... Ter- tumultuous relationship that if we could put this together we could win championship after championship but i don't and know a philosopher he's the big aristotle mm-hmm. and kobe is a um, accused criminal um i don't uh, wow like that. wow that's that <laughs> a man retires and and, and <laughs> well luckily you, you know you're 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 at a church so you know that <laughs> there's not anyone that's ever done anything wrong when when I was in Malibu, you, you know who I saw? Leave. You should never let people live anything down. 
I when I was in Malibu, I saw Daniel Tosh. He just walked or drove right yeah, he by me. over there by all the time. I know, and so he drove right by, and um, yeah. So his joke about Kobe Bryant is his Adidas commercial. Look, I know. Look, Daniel. Every time I see him, brings Kobe Bryant up just because he knows it pisses me off. You don't like you act like you and Tosh are friends. Have you never? You've never like on the show. Like they've worn homebrewed shirts a couple times. I go. I've posted pictures at the show. I'm friends with a bunch of the writers, and when they have religion and really? philosophy jokes, they text me to have them proofed. So I'm now like their their minister in residence. Are you serious? You didn't know this. See? I would have told that to. I don't listen enough. I'm sorry. You have been like so. Tasha's dad's like a TV preacher, yeah. like Pentecostal style. I mean, in the style of TV preaching, not like <laughs> not like he pretends to be one. No, and so uh, in Florida. His, yeah. his sister goes to a UCC church in Florida and is like uh, works in like women's health and choice stuff, uh, leader at her UCC church. And uh, Daniel does not have that type of uh, transformative, positive relationship with the church. Yeah, I don't I didn't think he did. Um, no. So he's not. I think he to- experiences the church a lot like he experiences Kobe Bryant. Really negatively, but without, but what he he's distracted by the sheer amazing brilliance of, of the church. Mama. Yeah, so you basically just said church is like Kobe Bryant. Well, if you're a Los Angeles Laker fan, like it, Augustine said that the, the church is a whore and my mom, so it's kind of like that. Wow, that's complicated. You know, Kobe Bryant went to high school in Philadelphia, went to Upper Marion High School. When I was living in Philadelphia, I wrestled at Lower Marion. Mm. And we're, the, we're basically the same age. So in some ways, you and I are like twins separated at birth. Uh, kind of. I, yeah, basically. He, I mean, he's obviously a little bit taller, and that's the only difference. Yeah. Well, he won rings, and and uh, you're a senior minister <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a, a very influential church, younger than most. So Basically the same thing. And yeah. uh, salary is pretty comparable. Well, then... No, no, that's not okay. True. That's not true at all. <laughs> I was just—I I mean, I was like, "Whoa, time to switch denominations." <laughs> You're like, if I thought all this stuff was weird already, you didn't mention the the pay differential. Yeah, you just like, come on over. Screw instruments. <laughs> just for one service, one service. Oh, so we y'all have, have y'all have the uh, because you were but before you got to the church. They were like, you're thinking of getting uh, instrumental. Mm-hmm. They were, but then you get there, mm-hmm. and then and then happens. it happens. But yes. but maybe that transition in some people's imaginations attached to you versus the congregationals. Oh, only in Rob Bell when he said on the podcast because he didn't understand our church. He didn't understand your church. Yeah, so you and Rob are the only ones who were miscon- misconstrued about that situation. Oh. I'm just here preaching the Bible. That's all I do. Oh, I know. I mean, I mean, I see a lot of books behind you. There are a lot. Yeah. Do you see uh, Richard Beck's book right behind me? I do. I do. You want to know what Luke people are going to say after this podcast intro? This is not really an intro. This is actually an entire podcast. I did, well, they're going to say Luke normally has nice, short, to the point intros, and it gets to his conversations. <laughs> At Homebrewed, if you don't want to hear Trip talk for ten minutes, you just skip ten. And then it gets the interview. Now Luke has already been corrupted, and I wasn't even the one trying to lead us off. You're like, well, if we're a duo and it's a movie. See? Sorry, that's my fault. I just want the universe to know 
that like the reason they they skip them but it's just the sheer joy of of conversing with me is just exactly it's you you're magnetic oh yeah but i like you know actually you know what like kesha said your love it's my drug Mm. i'm not cool enough to listen to that so i (laughs) i i don't know if i was gonna sing a song about love it we could do like uh love is a losing game huh or we just do Love is a Battlefield, which is a song that uh, Richard Beck references in his book and in this podcast, which oh, we're about to transition to. Five points for that transition. That transition was almost newsworthy. <laughs> it was uh, home, home throwdown. So, Lectiocast. So we're How many podcasts? You, you have a million podcasts, don't you? Like 17 of them. 17 podcasts? Yes, there's like, I see them all over the, the tunes. Oh, like how many different actual podcasts there are? Age, age barreled. Barrel age podcasts are like the greatest hits of the first six years of interviews that you can't okay. find anymore. Then there's okay. Theology Nerd Throwdown, and that's uh-huh. like kind of QA. Yeah, Lectiocast. Lectiocast is lectionary podcast. But Daniel Kirk does that all the time. I'm only on it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you should go on it because you, you use the lectionary. You know, it's the Bible. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that school you went to wasn't accredited. Like they didn't tell you about this. And <laughs> like there was like church history class. There was John the Baptist, Jesus, and us. Church of Christ. It just yeah. jumped right over there. I t- we talked about this in the podcast. I you know, know. It, it's a <laughs> blank spot. Um, yeah, you know, ninety eight percent of all the Christians have ever lived. But um, the uh, yeah. So then there's there's the story of Godcast. Yes. Which, now Morgan that Freeman. Morgan Freeman has been on the podcast. Why do good podcast guests happen to bad people? I don't know. I, that, was, that was a high-quality tweet. Thank you. Um, I feel pretty good about it. But now Barry and I, are, I we're, we're trying to decide what we're going to call the podcast now that we're not going to just talk about the show that's no longer on. <laughs> and, and and here's what we're thinking. We're, th- we're going to call it God-ish. <laughs> that's good. Uh, God-ish. Yeah. God. Is that a spinoff of Blackish? Is that what you're going with that? No, no, no. Just like, uh, like if you say it fast, it sounds like goddess. Because when I think of you, I think of a goddess. That makes and sense. God-ish is the ability for just professional religion scholars to talk about anything. Okay. So, um, Good. Do it. Do we'll you talk about anything? Talk about anything. That's what we're thinking. But yeah. you know. Okay, so you have a million have a podcasts. Yeah, you have I a million like podcasts. But I've, oh, uh, the culture, culture cast. cast. See, culture cast. But I'm not. I can't go on culture cast very often because I really only like 94 to 98. That's good years, though. It that is really good years. Finally, you hear yeah. that, Pyatts? Christian and Amy uh, do the podcast. Slim Moon is on there. Slim is like cool. Like he was in the music industry with like all the original grunge peeps, and then. Amy is senior minister at First uh, Christian in Portland, and Christian is a, a minister's husband. A minister's husband. I mean, he does other stuff, but yeah. All right, cool. Do your thing. Culture it up, guys. Thanks Culture for it up. Checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.